y'all. Welcome back. Episode six of the exit interview. So excited. Kevin, how you feeling? I'm feeling good, feeling great. Yes. Excited for this interview tonight, but overall excited because we're getting closer to the end of the school year. <laughs> well, who's counting? Oh, I am. <laughs> um, so we have Dr. Darlene Sampson on tonight. So excited to hear her story um, and just figure out like how her story can help um, administrators, teachers, all of our um, folks listening, um, support them in understanding the lived experiences of Black educators. But before we get started, our intro as always, don't forget to follow us on, at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram and Twitter. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash two dope teachers and a mic. Our email address, in case you want to email us to be on the show, ask us questions or whatever, is two dope teachers at gmail.com. That's T O O, obviously. You can listen to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts or at mrmunoz.org. If you do listen to us on Apple, please leave us a five star rating and review. It really does help others find us and get our content. Finally, if you want to support us financially, which we know you do, that's head right. over to that's right. Head over to slash 2 dope teachers where you can become a pa- patron for just $5 a month. And I just got to put this out there, the 2 dope uh, nation sticker, when you get your $15 contribution when you do that, can't beat it. You can't. You can't. Yes. Yeah. Shout so out get- to Sham for the artwork. Yeah, it was super dope. So make sure you go over there and support um, patreon.com slash two dope teachers and we do appreciate it. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Episode five. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Sampson, for joining us. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and we just like, as always, feel free. It's this conversation. Start, first question we always start off with is, like, what's your story? How'd you get into education? And then really, like, what led up to you leaving the K-12 space? Um, and feel okay. free to tell us your story. Hello, everyone. Uh, get your phone, get your pencil and paper. We're about to have a clinic, okay? Let's go. Okay. So um, I'm Dr. Darlene Sampson. And let me tell you about my story from the beginning, because I didn't choose education and social work. It chose me. Huh. And I was one of those people that um, I grew up with pastors. My mother was a missionary. My father was a pastor. You know, those Kojic folks. Hallelujah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, I was raised in the church. And I was one of those individuals who my parents were very clear. Service is what you do, girl. That's Mm. what you do. Mm -hmm. That's what's expected of you to stand on those shoulders, to make our family proud. Uh, to represent Black folks. So very, very early on, growing up in the church, speaking in the church, talking in the church, um, you know, you had to get up there and they used to call that little piece that you had to say on Easter and Christmas. And yes, uh, Yes. so I learned how to talk. I was a public relations master when I was just 10, practically, (laughs) because I learned how to speak to people and connect with people and to see what they needed. And so early on education and social work were my pieces because my mother also took in um, individuals who were struggling with mental illnesses and she supported people with mental illnesses. And so at that time, way back when I was born, there was not a lot of support and particularly for black folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Support. And so 
the spirituality and the caring were all wrapped together. So it wrapped around me and it became ingrained in me. So that's kind of how I chose education and social work. I am a licensed clinical social worker by trade, but I also have a PhD in culturally responsive pedagogy, mm. teaching educators how to connect instructionally, socially, and emotionally with diverse um, children, groups, kids who have uh, special needs or differentiated learning needs. So mm -hmm. that's um, what I've done. And my work has really just mixed both fields. I haven't divorced the two, social work and education. I keep them together. One helps me understand human behavior and the other helps me move change um, and look at the um, system of education. And so that's, that's kind of how I got to both of those areas. Okay. Mm. I love that idea of, uh, I can relate to it because I was thinking about my own family because um, we have a lot of teachers in my family. And I'm uh -huh. like, well, what, what is that? You know, but I think the commonality is, is we come from a, a family that was raised in the church and this idea of service mm -hmm. and, and that, that you give back. And so like, I've, I, I start to think about us, my generation of the family, all of my cousins who went into education and, and, and that just really hits with me, you know, that yeah. idea of you learn it from a, a young age mm -hmm. that it's important what you do because it impacts the others yes. who are going to come after you. Yeah. But you know, Black people, we teach all the time. That's because right. In order for us to stay safe, in order for people to understand us culturally, in order for us to um, see the world in multiple ways, in order to be validated, we're always teaching. So we are groomed to teach. Um, and that's why mm. we're so resilient, because we've learned how to teach in ways that engage others. So um, that's just who we are. We are teachers. We're educators. We're social workers. Um, we are spiritual folks. So it comes natural to us. It's ingrained in us. Yeah, I love that. We are groomed to teach. I love that. I love that. I yeah. love that. And when you say that, like, I think about all the lessons I learned uh, you know, with my mom, my grandma, my dad, my grandpa, you know, always those lessons that were always coming through about everything, you know, yes. in the world. And, and I just think about that, that powerful education um, that I've gotten. And it makes me think about this idea, you know, I think what, what our podcast is about is, is why are black, why do black educators leave, right? Because a lot of us and I, I felt this way, uh, um, like we, we teach for a different reason. Yes. There's a different reason why we go into it. It's not just to get a paycheck. It's not because summers, uh, we have summers off, although all of those things are nice. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, we come into it. Most black educators that I meet say, you know, I wanted to impact kids who were like, yes, and for help sure. my people. For sure. Know? Absolutely. So, and, 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 uh, Dr. Simpson, where, where is it that you grew up? Where'd you grow up? Okay, that's a long story. Okay, I grew up in Pueblo, Colorado. Okay. There's not many of us there. It's, no. That's a whole podcast. Okay, that's, yes. a, that's another podcast. <laughs> because, um, but I had this large, not large, but a kind of a medium church family. Yes. So the people around me look like me and they care for me and watched over me. Um, but in a town of a hundred thousand, there might be 2000 black folks in, uh, Pueblo, Colorado, but that's where I grew up. Wow. 
Wow. Even still now, even still now, you think? And most of them have left, actually. It's diminished. It's lower. Uh, even the numbers are lower from the 100,000. Uh, a lot of people had to move out or find other jobs. The steel mill closed. That's where a lot of the Black folks worked when I grew up. Um, my parents weren't. My mother was in health, and my father was in the automotive business, but they were both um, uh, they had the church as well. And we had this choir that sang all over and you come to Denver. And so I was exposed really early to, you know, just going places and doing different things. But uh, we stayed in our close knit area and across the street was someone black for me and around the corner. Someone's black for me. We stayed in a specific area in Pueblo and everybody knew everybody and everybody knew everybody's business. Yep. Of course. <laughs> yep. 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 So I had you, about five mamas who watched uh -huh, over me and told uh -huh. on me all the time. All the time. <laughs> I believe that. So did you start your teaching career or your, um, you said it's, it's social not teaching. Work. Social work. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Did you start your social work career in Pueblo or were you moving to Denver or somewhere else? Well, I watched social work and watching my mother uh, as a health provider and also caring for individuals with mental illnesses. But um I didn't, when I first went to college, I left Pueblo and went to Greeley, Colorado. And that's where I received my first degree. I had a double major in rehabilitation and psychology. And from there, I came back and started working in child welfare. And I worked in child protection probably 10 years, a long time, and, and went from child protective worker all the way up to a supervisor in Adams County. Okay. So I worked there for a long time in social work. And um, probably after working many, many years, I got my master's, maybe five years after that, I got my master's degree in social work. And I was teaching um, social work students. So I was doing education at higher ed, ed level, not uh -huh. K through 12. So I was teaching him for those who were seeking their master's in social work. And, but they also were working with lots of diverse populations. And we know who disproportionately comes into these agencies yes. and needs support and counseling. And so I had to do a lot of work. So it was teaching and social work together. And some probably within 25 years of having my master's in social work, I said, you know what? I'm in schools as a social worker. I want to have a greater, um, more information, uh, more understanding of teaching. So I then went and moved to um, pursue a doctoral degree. So it was a big leap from yeah. social work and, so, and being in schools to being a doctoral student at the University of Colorado. So that's what, um, how I got into education. And so all the um, instructional pieces that teachers get, they collapse it into a doctoral program in the first couple of years is instruction and pedagogy and writing plans. And what do you do and how do you understand the field? What's the pacing of teaching? And how do you look at formative assessments? And all of those things are collapsed really quickly into a doctoral program. And then you start to write your data. But I knew that I wanted to impact black students that I had been teaching and supporting. I centered black students in my doctoral work and it was focusing on the culturally responsive lessons that black children prefer that mm -hmm. make them want to connect with school and their teacher. Uh, and you can look it up. It's called cultural vibrancy. It's published and it's about the kinds of things that students of uh, black students preferred. What ended up happening is all students wanted it. Yes. Sure, all sure. students preferred 
the kinds of lessons that I came to teach them about. All students wanted to hear about themselves. All students wanted to talk from a social emotional level and to connect the old history with the new history. So they wanted to get out of the school. They wanted to see people who look like them. These things aren't new. Kids been telling you this. Uh, we know they want to have validation on their history and they want to be honored. Uh, they want to be cared for. They want to be loved in school. Nobody said like, they want to be loved, like yes. you love your child. Mm -hmm. And so all of this came out in my doctoral uh, work and I published it way back in 2011, Cultural Vibrancy, the types of lessons that black children want in schools. And it ended up with all of the children in the classroom wanting those lessons. Huh. That, that's uh, that's always it doesn't surprise me you know because yeah. um we we've talked about before you know that that all kids learn better when they have black educators all kids yes. learn better when we use these culturally responsive methods you yes. know and and i've always i teach middle school and i've always been convinced that that kids like to learn about themselves especially middle school students they, they yes. want to know who they are, where they came from, mm -hmm. why, are, why are they treated the way they are? Because they're starting to grow to an age where they start to really, you know, notice their, how their identity impacts their Absolutely. lives. Absolutely. And so it just, it really is, you know, it, it's so obvious when you start to get into it. What do these kids, yes. they always want to know what will engage the kids. I'm like, ask them, they'll tell you. Yeah, sure will. It's not obvious to some people though, you know? Yeah. People are challenged because uh, you gotta look at yourself. You've gotta know your kids. If you don't already know uh, the metastasized cancer of inequities in our society, it's everywhere up through curriculum, um, discipline, uh, every single area there is cancer mm. of inequity in the school system. If you're not ready to talk about that, you really are not ready to do culturally responsive teaching. Yeah, that's so true. It's that, that history, the healing, all that is so important. Yes. Understanding all the systems and how they're intertwined. You're absolutely right. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I, we appreciate that. Um, so where, when you finish your doctoral program, were you working at the time or you were? I worked up until I, I worked, I worked all the way through. Okay. But um, I moved to part-time as I wrote my dissertation. And uh, I continued to work in the school. Um, shout out, hoo, hoo, Montbello High School is where I worked. And okay. it is coming back. <laughs> and those are my kids. And this is my community. That is my hood. That's where I hang. That's where I continue to be. And um, I wrote uh, for almost three years to finish my doctoral work while working at Montbello High School, um, working as a social worker, uh, support. Um, I did just about everything for the students. You can't just sit there and go, well, you know, I'm only going to teach this. I'm only going to look at them this way. I took them on trips. I made sure they got scholarships. I was the mama, the social worker, the mediator. Um, all of the things that our kids need, which is called warm demander pedagogy. Mm -hmm. We, I did those things. I had high warmth for them, but I wasn't taking those stuff because I know they were great. And so those are the things that uh, I did during that time uh, while I was preparing my doctoral work and uh, doing my study. Okay. 
Awesome. Awesome. So we obviously, um, based on like this, the topic of the podcast, know that you're no longer at that school and you're no longer necessarily doing K-12 work yes. directly for direct as an employee yes. of school districts. So can you tell us kind of the, the, some of the situation that led to you going from being a mama, doing the yeah. scholarship work and field trips to where it was like, I think it's time consider leaving education mm-hmm. in in the capacity that you were in it. yes okay well I have to go backwards though because okay. after I got my doctoral degree I then um the district decided that that I was working in decided that they were going to have a coach responsive director for the entire district yes they had not had that they yes. had not been exposed to that um, there was lots of inequities and challenges going on particularly around disproportionality and discipline Yes. Uh, in instruction. And I had just earned my doctoral degree. I applied for the position as director of culturally responsive instruction and got the position. So way back in 2006, I became the director of culturally responsive teaching. And I stayed there about five years. And it was a battleground mm. for the work, battleground for our students uh, a battleground for uh, my emotional health. Yeah. Um, so many things occurred during that time. Uh, people simply weren't ready for my greatness. And that is not uh, to be uh, arrogant. Yeah. That is just to say that they were not ready for the work. Diversity, equity, inclusion work uh, simply couldn't even look at me and see me as a black woman. I was mm. invisible. So building an infrastructure for the work at Denver Public Schools was very, very hard, very, very traumatic um, to the point that I left. Uh, I, I can't even call it racial battle fatigue. I don't know what's worse than fatigue. What's the <laughs> next one? So mm. it was greater mm. than racial battle fatigue because while on the plantation, mm-hmm. I'm use that term, yes, because we yeah. had individuals who um, struggle with who they were as black folks too. And mm. to this day, I don't fault them because I see we were, they were all fighting, fighting for the same things. And some of the same black folks who fought against the work, the training, the instruction, looking at data, um, dissecting some of the challenges all, have also left. At the mm. time though, they were scrounging and scratching to stay alive in a space in which you will drown if people are not ready to do the work. So I, I don't even begrudge people to this day. I say, I totally know what happened. Um, it was like a domestic violence relationship. Oh. We'll do better, we'll do better, we'll change. We see these things and then knock you upside the head the next day. Mm. So that was the challenge of being there as director. There were a lot of people like, embrace it. We want you to come. We want you to train the teachers. We're going to onboard teachers. Let's look at data. Um, Oh, somebody just made fun of this student or kids with special needs. Um, I wrote protocols. I did statements of faith. I did mission statements. I worked collectively with all kinds of different challenges. Um, And my role was to be in all places, communications and data, instruction and schools. Um, every single space um, was a battleground. So the racial fatigue was very, very hard. 
um, it was racial, but it also was gendered as mm-hmm. a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was intersectional. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were so many things. I'm a dark brown skinned woman. Mm-hmm. So colorism came up. Um, substantial size, gender came up. The fact that I'm unapologetically black and speak to who I am, that mm-hmm. was a challenge. Uh, she's talking too loud. Uh, somebody said in a training one time, Dr. Sampson moves her head too much when she talks. Huh. Oh, uh, this wow. Is, this is the kind of behavior that I endured. Uh, I can't hear what she said because she has dreadlocks. <laughs> so when you start back in 2006, now everybody's woke. Yes, yes. They love dreadlocks. They love brown skin. They want to hear about the instruction, even if they're not going to do it. Yes, yeah, uh, right. They want to be engaged. But in 2006, you're like, no, wait a minute. She's going too far talking about our kids are brilliant and bright, resilient, and they have a right to be an IB and gifted and have access to classes. She had nerve enough to tell me I needed to teach all kids that I have to have the capacity to do that. So while I push and push and push, when I look this many years later, um, the emotional toll um, was very, very great. But I then created what was called the TOTS, the trainer of trainers. And these trainers helped me train and support teachers all over the district. I had 17 of them. I was given a budget by my director who was strong for my work and covered me many times. And that was the only way I survived with the TOTS, who I could go in a room and say, can you believe what you just heard? Can you believe what you just saw? Mm -hmm. So the racial battle fatigue, I would say, got better the more we pushed in to different yes. spaces. Yes. And I think that's so important, that idea of that team that you can talk about it, right? Yes. And, and, you know, I know uh, in my building, I have uh, my, our producer for this podcast, Gerardo, is like my go-to yes. guy, you know, or where you can talk and, and you have those, I can't believe so-and-so said this. Yes. What are we going to do? How can we push back against this? How can we organize to to better meet the needs of kids? So, you know, it's, it's, and what you're talking about is the work that, 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 that we always talk about, you know, that, that you're always fighting a fight. It's every day. It's going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. No matter what, like you, you, you can't even decide what we're going to eat for lunch. You can't (laughs) even put your your word in for lunch without them fighting and arguing about it, right? And and you yes. feel like, and again, to go back to what we talked about, this calling to serve, right? And when it's that important, you you can't let yourself be quiet. You can't you can't sit and watch the injustices happen. You That's can't right. not do all that you can for the kids every day. Yes. You know. Yes, and I centered their voices. I wanted people to hear what our kids said about their experiences. I did videos with them. They were published online. I sent them around to schools. Let me tell you what the students said about you never speaking to them or correctly saying their name. Let me talk to you about the young lady who receives um, a message from you that she's not going anywhere in life. Or let me tell you about the young lady who you told you're gonna be pregnant you're yep. not going on to college or you don't mm. have the aspirations. And so not only did I push systems um, and the structures and that metastasize inequity, um, I also 
centered the voices of um, all children, but particularly those children that were showing up in data disparities, black and brown, Native American children, it was atrocious. Yep. Uh, their care, the lack of curriculum, the tension, the invisibility. So it wasn't just for black children. All that, that was my subject matter and what um, I was unapologetically afraid to talk about. Uh, but they had, they had risen high in the data uh, in terms of um, students who were feeling um, very disconnected. Yeah. And I, I feel like teachers never want to, you know, they, they never want to experience the cognitive dissonance. They don't want to yes. hear what they, if you they, let the kids tell you what they think, open That's it right. up, let, mm -hmm. because they're going to be honest with you about how it feels, how they, you know, feel about the school. They, yes. they say it all the time. This place is a prison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, why mm -hmm. are they saying that? It's yes. how we're treating them. It's how we're interacting with them. Mm -hmm. yes. You know, you remind me, Kevin, of some of a, um, so parents would call me, Dr. Sampson, let me tell you what's happening. Yes. Can you help me? My son's getting pushed out of school. Dr. Sampson, they took his paper and tore it up and threw it in the trash. Dr. Sam, it would every week, every week. Sure. I can remember going to school where our kids were walking like they were walking the line in prison. And the principal said, I have to do that for these children. If so get out of control. Their cultural flavor, who they wore, uh, they were young and already been adultified and over-sexualized. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I had to talk about that. And many people were put in control of our kids who didn't really love them, who didn't care about them or didn't understand their authentic lives. And so um, my role wasn't just this instructional, social worker, educational. I had to like fight for the lives of our our kids, the right to be who they are and the right to be validated in school. So that was, to me, that was almost a greater um, task uh, while I'm teaching you about what instruction looks like and what behavior looks like. So just thinking about what you're saying, it sounded like you ever played the game whack-a-mole? Yeah. Like you know, and <laughs> yes. it, it feels like it was, it was, there were systems that you were putting in place and you have your tots and there were things that you were doing. And at the yes. same time, this whack-a-mole of trying to train over here and have a, a yes. parent meeting over here. And so when you talk about that exhaustion and how hard that was. Yes. Yeah. Many days I went home and cried. Many days I was sad. Um, it was always the kids and those educators were like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to do this. That really shored me up um, and wrapped around the work that I was trying to do. It was all worth it. All of the beatdowns, uh, all of the uh, challenges, uh, all the calling me out in meetings, all of it was worth it. Um, or I would write something someone else would take responsibility for. Oh, yes. kind of stuff that happens a lot in yes. school classes and higher ed everywhere. Microaggressions all the time. Um, I think one of the sadder things for me though is that people learn to keep it in and be more quiet about it, but the behavior was still the same. Hmm. Uh, but there were great people who through the evaluations and documentations and the work we did with them made a lot of changes in who they were. Um, and systems then called on me like uh, the teacher observation system and the data system and the family engagement system to work with them closely. So there, it wasn't all bad, but I would say it, it, the 
challenges were greater than the people that um, wanted to change. Yeah. When it comes to that, and I, I love this idea about changing, right? And, and I think that's the big question uh, for, for the trainers of educators, right? The people who are trying to push more culturally responsive practices. But, but do you feel like, is there a certain amount of learning or is it a certain amount of heart and attitude? Is it, is it more matter of the heart than the mind? Is it, is it more, is it about learning or is it about like your intentions? Do you know mm. what I'm saying? If that makes sense? Dr. Well, we have a lot of good white liberal intentions yeah. and look what happens with that. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's not, it's not so much the intention it's the ability to change and transform over time and to take it to different areas. So if I was to teach about what it looks like to incorporate a science lesson uh, with instructional pieces or a math lesson, people think um, different content areas are culturally neutral. They're not. Every single area has something that can be dismantled or looked at, or you can add to gender and race and size and color and differentiated learning, but people don't get that. And so it's the person that has that opening that says, I want to know more. I'm willing to learn. And that's called cultural humility. Yes. And when people step into the space and they check their privilege and they say, I got to understand what this means because you're not no savior. The kids save us. They give us everything. That's right. Mm -hmm. Say that again. And so we really want people who, when they come to teaching, you can already see that opening and they may not be there. They may say the wrong thing. Um, They may go run and get a lesson. I used to have this all the time. We're going to teach the N word. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Okay, you ain't ready. (laughs) You're not ready yet, okay. Um, No, no, no. You do not wear a Native American headdress to teach. Okay, let's let's talk about this. And so, but there's these people that are like, I must know more. I have a yearning. I want to love our kids and I want to get them ready to be global citizens, but they're going to teach me too. Those are the people that I was really interested in working with because there's an opening there and there is a positive intention and they um, have an ability to put their privilege aside and to be taught. And that's going to be important. Well, we're going to pause for a second just to go on break. Um, but when we get back, we want to keep talking to you about this, these, all <laughs> okay. these gems you are dropping and um, just kind of keep going on, like where you're doing now and how your family and community was supportive of your work and still, um, still are supportive. So, all right, we'll be back in a okay. moment. Okay. Hello, listener. If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. 
Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash 2 teachers. That's patreon.com slash 2 teachers. And we are back with more of the exit interview and our wonderful, amazing guest, Dr. Darlene Sampson. Woo-woo! Woo-woo! <laughs> the work about it, about it. So, Dr. Sampson, you were telling us, you know, all, all that you were going through all the experiences, you know, beyond racial battle fatigue, we still don't know what we got to call it, but just having to fight that fight, you know, yes. and doing the work. And, 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 and I just thank you as a person who's been in the district for a minute. Thank you for the work that you did, because I think while we are not near perfect people, your, your influence is still felt in the district and right. where we need to go. And, and I'm hearing more and more of the right words. Now the question is, does that manifest in action? But if I had to ask you, what what things would you want administrators, district leaders to know, uh, building leaders to know, to, to help reduce racial battle fatigue, to, to make sure that we keep these black educators who have a deep desire to serve and a passion and a cultural knowledge of the community and, um, ability to connect with students, what advice would you give these leaders to help reduce that racial battle fatigue? Yes. Well, one of the important things, just like I center the voices of students, they need to do that for the black and brown and differentiated staff they have now. Mm-hmm. So they always will say to me, we've got to recruit and retain more. Well, you can't even do that until you look at who you have and why they're there. And if they feel comfortable being there, how are you treating them? Do you ask them, are they invisible in your building? Do you Mm -hmm. call on them to be the black disciplinarian or are you engaged with them in ways that value who they are? And we know that black folks like to be in a cohort, that they have other people who look like them. It doesn't mean we won't connect with others, but we do have to have that space where we feel validated and it's safe enough for us to say what we want. And I can remember black educators walking in buildings like whispering to me, pointing to me to come to them so they could tell me what was going on. Mm. Not feeling comfortable enough. Um, they were being pitted against each other. Uh, they were being pitted against uh, teachers that were not black. Uh, they were being pitted against black parents and kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were asked to do all kinds of things that are totally inappropriate and cause severe racial battle fatigue and make them wanna leave the district or the school. Um, if I'm the only one and there's only two and you expect me to speak, uh, I'm the black consultant for the whole world. That used to, have to happen to me in buildings where I'm gonna speak for all black folks, like <laughs> I am the person. But then I don't go and get people from my community that looks like my kids. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, it, they don't have to necessarily be teachers, although we wanna groom people, but all, kids, every kid, including black kids, need to see all kinds of people coming into the spaces. And there's this stuff in the literature about whiteness as property, so that you become property of, uh, our black kids become property of schools and school districts and of a charter school or different, whatever kind of school. And they don't even reach out to the people who look like the kids. 
right. Because they're our kids. We're going to do what we want to do with them, even if we don't treat them well, even if they don't see culturally responsive teaching, even if they don't see other people look like them or their parents come to school and feel validated. So they leaders have to go beyond what they just learn in school. If you aren't going to reach out to community, if you don't want to know, you got to know where your kids are eating, what they're doing on the weekend, where are they at, how do they feel, what happens to them when they walk in their black and brown shoe. If you're not ready to hear those things about your kids, you're not ready to lead in communities of color and you're not ready to lead in white communities because white kids and other kids all need to know about other kids too because we know that they have better empathy. They're less, bu less bullying occurs when you know about other people. When you see them in the curriculum and you know their value and their history, you're less likely to make fun or be disrespectful uh, and denigrating. So if you are going to lead for equity, which is a training that I do now, if you're yes. gonna lead for equity, it's not performative. And all of a sudden you got a beautiful mission statement, but it doesn't mean anything. And the people, are, the black folks are still whispering in your building because yep. they're scared. Uh, well, already there, you're not paying attention to what they need and they have to be able to say what the truth is. And when they do speak out, you don't squash them and beat them down. Uh, when they ask about how kids are being treated, that's something to say, wow, we got to look at this. How can we do it? I want to hear your voices. But you got to learn to podcast, reading, checking yourself. Uh, there's a book, Coaching for Equity. Uh, you got to do multiple things. Don't just go to your Black folks and say, tell me everything I'm supposed to do. You ain't making the money. But tell yeah. me everything I'm supposed That's to right. do. But then I'll shoot you down if I don't like it. That's right. I think, I'm, you know, when you're talking about going into schools and folks telling you to come on over and whispering to you, Yes. It reminds me, and I have to just pause right here and say, like, shout out to Stacy Brandon, who uh, works in the Office of Inclusive Excellence for Cherry Creek School District. She was my uh -huh. person when uh, I was okay. teaching in Cherry Creek. She was my person, and she was the one that I always call her and say, like, I please come over here and be like, <laughs> a, like a cool glass of water for like yes. thirty minutes. Just and when she was in our building for trainings or to meet with the administrators or whatever, she would always come up and see me. And it was like, I, she came every time I needed her. Right, and, um, yes. Because I did have black educators in my building, but they very much so assimilated to whiteness and white supremacy yes. culture. And so mm -hmm. it was more like denying. Like yes. they just did not, and not, not everyone, not every year, but yes. the, the hardest part of my career, um, it, was, it was that way that people just, I yeah. was just rendered invisible. And so, yeah, for... To say, to think about now, she's leaving the district, Cherokee School District this year at the end. And if you have left uh, your school district, VPS, just to think of like how many Black educators no longer have that person. And uh, they may be replaced, sure, but yeah. not have that, that relationship. And that's so mm -hmm. important. Yeah. But you know, I've maintained those relationships, which is interesting. Sure. sure A sure. lot of them. Um, I don't think a week goes by that someone from DPS doesn't say, Dr. Sampson, what should I do with this? Dr. Awesome. Sampson, let me tell you what happened. Um, I hear the same things and I hear some progressive things and I hear some different things. Yeah, I, There's a lot that's going on um, with pushing the work, but it was, it was similar to what was said 15 years ago. Yes. People weren't ready. So some of this work is developmental. 
I want to say that, um, that uh, people aren't ready till they're ready. Uh, or if they get a lawsuit. That's the other thing. That's right. That's the other thing. <laughs> oh, it's always the, the money. It's always the money. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. We're, or we got an uh, OCR complaint, Office mm-hmm. of Civil Rights. Yep. Okay. Ooh, we better do something real then quick we, here. Then we act. Yes. And they divide the groups that are already minoritized and otherized. So uh, at the time that I was coming along in DPS, they went full force for English learners yes, and put money everywhere in every crevice corner. The same thing I've been saying that helps all kids and, uh, and then push the English learners start rising above the black children in proficiency. Yep. So then that pitted pa- black parents and brown parents. Oh, uh, so this is the kind of behavior that happens over and over in our schools and districts. Sure. And it really goes back to that point that if we do these culturally responsive practices, and this is the same thing I've heard in English language learner trainings, right? Is that these practices help all students. They do. And and if we resist it or we say, you know, you can, you have to do it this way or it has to look that way or for these kids, there's funding for it. And for these kids, there's not. It's just, let's, if we really want to, and and again, you know, I, I have big questions about that achievement gap, right? That language yeah. of all of it. But if we want to do something and create more equity, we know, we, we know, like you said, this stuff has been said for 15 years and probably even yes. longer than that, right? Way we start to go back. People 400 make, years. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this is right. what Car- Carter G. Wood said when he creates Negro History Week is right. thinking. He's like, they, we, we need to learn about ourselves. That's how right. we're going to engage and, and improve our lives. Yes, absolutely. So we got some serious work to do. And um, this new movement and moment, I don't even know, because I'm way older than all of you. And so what I will say is that uh, I see some hopeful pieces. I see some performative pieces. Um, I see some rich pieces. uh, But we can't keep knocking statues down when there are systems of oppression. That means absolutely nothing. And uh, education is one of the biggest systems of oppression. All the forms of oppression are engaged there. And um, this is the time to push. So that's what I do now. Um, I work for the Western Educational Equity Assistance Center. And um, I don't even know if, uh, not a lot of people know, some do, that the United States is divided into four quadrants. And the US, uh, the Federal Department of Education provides funds for K through 12 schools and K through 12 organizations free of charge to request services around race, national origin, English learners, religion, uh, particularly Native American children. We do a lot of work around trauma, culturally responsive trauma, not culturally informed, I ain't informed, culturally Mm -hmm. responsive, you're doing the work, you know about how to do it. Uh, And we do um, a lot of work around Title IX. And this is under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I do the work in 13 states and three territories. So I work for the Western region. uh, And uh, we also have three territories, Island of Mariana, Hawaii, and Guam. But it also could be um, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Wyoming. So all principals, school district leaders, superintendents, they send us an email on the website. We need help around disproportionality in this. 
We need help around culture responsive instruction. Would you come and do an audit of our entire district? Would you evaluate our kids uh, in terms of student engagement, how they feel about being in this district in terms of gender and sex equity, whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and so um, that's what I do now in the 13 states and three territories. And we're travel, travel, traveling up until the pandemic. Now everything's virtual, but we will start to travel again in the fall. I love that. I love that you said it was free. Yes, <laughs> it yeah. is free. Paid for by the federal government. And so glad for the new administration because the old administration was pushing back on critical race theory. Yes. Privilege. yes. These yes. are some of the things we talk about when we go. Um, we give practical, but we also have to have a framework to talk through some things. And um, we even thought that some of our work would be diluted or changed. But the 1964 Civil Rights Act is anchored. You can't get rid of us, but you could defund us. Yes. It would take an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. And so um, I am so glad our new administration came in and said, uh, no, we got to continue this trajectory of work. Uh, it is hard and toxic. It's still very difficult. Yes. Um, yes, people still call and they ask us for work and they have no intention of embedding it, but it's a checkoff. Um, so that's interesting. The work. Yeah, still happening though. And there's some who just really are pushing in so many ways to change what's happening in their district. Wow, interesting. That is fantastic. And the work is so important, you know, given what we know about the demographics of the American educational system and where we are headed. Yes. Um, I and but but it and and when I think about the bigger picture, you know, and, and just the struggle for freedom and liberation, you know, it's long term. It's not going to yes. be easy. They're not going to give it up, you know, because I feel like it's. It's the, and this is why I think there's always been this attack on education, whether it be attacking um, higher education for being too liberal or whether uh, attacking uh, K through 12 education for not being, you know, good enough and, yes. and, and the solution, the cause of all of the problems in the world. Um, but it's because, you know, the educational system helps to maintain white supremacy yes. at its root. Yes. It's rooted everywhere. Budgeting. I was looking the other day. Could you? Someone called me. Could you help me write a grant um, for underserved students? I don't do all that coded language. Underserved means historically excluded. Yep. Let's stop playing games mm. about uh, coded language. And uh, well, it's for minority kids. No, no, they're minoritized. Yep. Uh, but in the world, they are the global majority. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So yeah. coded language, I push back on it and translate it and help people to think correctly about it. And no, don't get money and start doing all kinds of things for our kids, but they don't get it and they don't receive the benefit of what's coming to them. Yeah, I have I have one more question. Okay. Um, and this kind of goes back to the question Kevin asked about advice, but more so towards black educators. Yes. So, you know, I, recently I feel like with the podcast coming out, I've had more Black educators calling me or messaging me on Facebook and saying, like, I think it's time to go. Or I'm not sure what to do. Um, and just wondering and sharing story. Yes. And so my question is, like, what do you tell an educator who, a Black educator who's ready to leave but is afraid 
that like all their resume says is teacher yeah right and they yep. and for some for in their mind that's not enough but they know yeah. it's time for them to go what what advice yes. would you give them you know i was coaching some i coach a lot and mentor a lot of folks and and because people have done that for me and continue to do that for me uh, I was thinking about that last week because one um, teacher was saying, I, it's really time to go. I've put in and done everything I can. I'm exhausted emotionally. Um, now I'm starting to feel angry and my health is being impacted, uh, emotional health. And I said to her, let's look at what you've been doing because you're not branding yourself correctly. Mm. And so she does community work uh, with young ladies. Uh, this becomes on your Vita uh, educational support and consultation on behalf of marginalized students and populations. You, you've got to learn how to play that game like other folks. Yes, do. yes. You, they know how to change language and create stuff and haven't done half the work that we That's do. That's right. When you're at your church, uh, that's anchoring spirituality and education. Um, when you um, uh, attend affairs or you have a booth, like she would have booths of different things, that's an educational practice. So shore up your community-based experience, talk about it in a different way, um, add to it, um, have people that can provide a, um, a plethora of information about you, not just education, but all of us, we do a lot of different things that we don't take responsibility for because it's part of our blackness. That's right. And we need to say that because other people don't do it uh, and they don't uh, take responsibility for it. If, you re if you're reading, if you add to your knowledge skill, if you go to workshop, all of those are things as well. And so I was talking to her about all the things I, I've witnessed that she's not uh, said that she's done when she has been a, um, uh, she's been an instructional coach. Every time white folks come to you and ask you about blackness and black kids, you instruction, no coach. That's I right. love that. Yes, that's it's right. so true. That's so that's true. right. So we talked about that and the branding that has to go on. It's a part of the game. You know, it's a political game, uh, but it is the work that we do. And we need to be able to say, yes, I did these things and it's okay. But also sometimes you need to leave. And you're still leaving your kids there. That's what makes you sad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know how they may be treated. They never will get that lesson like you gave them. Or um, I said, did you ever think about the fact that I've been gone 15, uh, you know, 10 years or so, and I'm walking around Las Vegas, Dr. Samson. I'm like, <laughs> who is this? People remember what you embed in them when it validates and connects to them. So it's not for nothing when you leave after you've done what you can do. And sometimes you need to do it and let the next group come on and create that space. And that's how I left with a good headspace was that it's just time. I embedded what I could. They can't get away from me. There's still things there today that's right. that I created. And as mad as they were about the change and how I pushed, I still embedded a lot of uh, information. And so uh, I tell them your health and your emotional health are pieces that are important. And, and we weren't made to take responsibility for our whole, the whole social construct of race for black folks. We're not responsible. And people are made to make us feel that. And so that's some of the knowledge that I would drop on them is that you did what you could do. 
in this space. Now let someone else carry that torch to a different space. Now it's time for you to do something different for you. Wow. I love that. I love that. Well, um, what a beautiful place to end our podcast episode. Episode six. Episode (laughs) six. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Diane Sampson. Um, We'll definitely just take these pearls of wisdom. And I've written down so many notes as always. Um, And just like, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with with our educators, with our audience. And hopefully this is really going to be impactful for people who are listening to this and beyond. Great. Young folks are stepping up. It's your time now. I'm, I, you can stand on my shoulders. And I stood on someone else's and we will all work together. So it That's is it. absolutely your time. I'm just watching all of you. Yeah. I'm scared of y'all. You uh, well, we're thankful. We're <laughs> thankful for what y'all, what, what you've done. Yes. We are thankful. <laughs> Well, Well, thank you for having me. No problem. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. This includes Martha Schwalbe, Jesus Rodriguez, Sarah Foleno, Vaughn Tolliver, Kate Berger, Jessica Robles, Nick Arnold, Kelsey Gray, Sarah Fattori, Jody Barker, Jill Boyd Myers, Osan Perales, Natalie Schaefer, Jackie Parkins, Asia Lyons, Brian Sullivan, Matt Bush, Aaron Reed, Erwin Mananquil, Marissa Mochia, Patrick Kelso, Olivia Mickel, Kelly Molinet, Connor Sauer, Ali Cochran, Jennifer Chinsey, Graham Hubble, Ella Paul, Michael Pena, Mia Kelly, Katie Johnson, Maria de Jesus, Diana Bustamante Aguilar. Other supporters include Serena Williams, Sophia Halpin, Kate Hollerbeck, Alexis McLean, Nate Kay, Emily Santiago, Jen the Tudor, Jennifer Torman, Mirna Camacho, Jonathan Alman, Esteban Ortiz, Olivia Hiroda, Emily Fraser Abel, Leslie Hamilton, Kristen Edmiston, Patsy Everett, Vicky Onadera, Anthony Wright, Emily Breeden, and Mary Quant. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to join that list of supporters, head over to patreon.com slash teachers 